thank you for joining us for the next episode of ACE GP Training. My name is Priya and I'm a GP ST4 working in Hertfordshire. And over the next few months, I'll be joined by some incredible guests with the aim of helping you to not only ACE GP Training, but also to guide you as you start work as a fully qualified GP. We would love to hear from our listeners, so please do get in touch by leaving a comment or review through your podcast provider, and that will help us tailor future content, but also help others find us too. I've put our details in the bio if you want to email or contact us through Twitter. Hello, welcome to this ACE GP training episode on palliative care discussions. In my opinion, these discussions can be quite daunting for doctors and there can be a lot of apprehension about how to broach these topics. However, I think when done well, patients appreciate having had the discussion and ultimately it can make a really big difference to that person and their family's life. We are so lucky today to be joined by Caroline Wielden and Claire Nysel, who work for the Hospice of St Francis in Hertfordshire. They have a wealth of experience in this area and I can't wait to learn some consulting tips from them. Hello, Caroline and Claire. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Caroline, Claire, tell us a bit about yourselves and your background. I'm Caroline. I'm uh, head of the community team at the Hospice of St Francis. I qualified as a nurse back in 1995. I've got experience in oncology, HIV and AIDS, and I've been at the Hospice of St Francis for 15 years and in the community team for about nine years. And we you know, manage all sorts of complex cases in the community, sort of support people right to end of life. Well, welcome, Caroline. And hi, Claire. Hi, lovely to be here. So I'm a nurse. I've been qualified over 30 years and most of my clinical experience has been within palliative care as a community palliative care nurse in hospices and hospitals. And I'm now working at the Hospice of St Francis as part of the education team. And I support some patients that come to the hospice as part of the pulmonary fibrosis support group and alongside the community palliative care team. And I love sharing the things that I've learned in my career with others as part of the education team. And it's a real honour to share a few things with you today. Oh, thank you very much to you both for joining us. So tell me, why do you think doctors are so apprehensive about some of these conversations? I think it's a very personal thing, isn't it? It's fear of bringing up a difficult conversation and fear of making it worse, fear of saying the wrong thing, Yes. fear of upset, yeah. fear of opening a can of worms. Mm that might need a lot of addressing. Absolutely can understand why they are difficult conversations. But I guess the fact that we're here is that we're both passionate that actually um, when we're brave and have these conversations, it's great for the patients. They're often waiting for us to have them. And actually they're waiting to unpick um, their concerns. And if they have the opportunity to do that, it lessens their anxiety. It means plans can be put in place um, and that's good for them and their family. And then it's good for us as you know, GPs and clinicians, I think. Yeah. And Caroline, would you agree with that? And I often feel that actually the patient has already had some of these thoughts going around in their head. Often they've had the thought and they don't know how to say it or they've not had the opportunity to share it with anyone before. Yeah, I fully agree with what Claire said. It is that sort of fear of getting things wrong, perhaps. But yeah, I think a lot of patients are very relieved when we start to broach the subject, either haven't felt 
able to talk about it for fear of upsetting family members and loved ones. Or sometimes I don't think people realise that it is something you can talk about and being given permission to have that conversation. And I think that often in the media and out there, death or an end of life is portrayed as quite a scary harrowing experience and actually I don't think it necessarily needs to be that and I think sometimes dispelling that can be again as you said a relief to the patient as well and their family members. Absolutely and I think that is one of the challenges that as a society we're not so honest and open about talking death and dying. Maybe people are a little bit more now post-Covid but I think people haven't had the words to use or don't know when it's appropriate to talk about it. And yeah, I think there's a lot of fear and anxiety about getting it wrong. Yeah. So how would you say we should start broaching these conversations? Do you have any top tips for broaching, you know, either breaking bad news or just starting those advanced care planning conversations? I think it sort of feeling the room and the, the sense in that conversation and then just sort of introducing Questions around, have you thought about the future? Have you thought about, you know, what are your wishes for in the future or what's important to you as you get more poorly or get more unwell as as things change? Those sort of questions just to gently start opening. And you can often tell quite quickly whether you either get a a very sharp, no, no, I live day by day. I'll take each day as it comes. Thank you very much. End of. Or that more opening that you can then sort of follow on that conversation and be brave with what you ask. I think you're right about reading the room, but being curious about people's thoughts about the future and their hopes and their wishes. So doing it quite gently and just creating the environment where we do more listening than talking. Because so just using it, you know, open questions, you know, even what are your thoughts about the future or what's your understanding of what's happening now and how do you see the future progressing? If we encourage people to start talking, they often then bring it up. So I think Caroline's absolutely right. It's about creating that environment where people feel safe and comfortable, building that trust and rapport and listening and picking up cues when they sort of maybe say that they're worried and follow that up rather than avoiding it. We hear the term, sorry, advanced care planning a lot. What does advanced care planning actually involve? I assume it's got different aspects to it and different areas of discussion as well. So I think it's very varied and at its most basic level, I think it is just finding out what people want for their future, where they would like to be cared for, how they would like to be cared for, and say those things that would be important for them at, at end of life. But there are many, many layers on that that you can can add in, you know, Right. I think Claire's probably better to I'll perhaps pass to you, Claire, about the advanced directives and, and all of that sort of thing, if that's how somebody wants to go. You're right. I think I like to think of it that first and foremost, it's a conversation in advance of maybe a crisis situation or when people are at the end of their life about what's important to them. So I very strongly believe that it's about the conversation, not so much the paperwork and the coding, although I know that that is really important. And I think it's about finding out what matters and is important to that person now and what would matter and is important to them at the end of their life. And it can involve sort of different aspects. So it can just be 
about finding out their wishes, you know, where they want to be cared for, whether they want to go to hospital or not in certain circumstances, or whether actually they feel very strongly that there are treatments where they don't want, um, in which case we might put help them explore some legally binding documents like advanced decisions to refuse treatment if they feel strongly around certain areas. Maybe just encouraging people, are the people that know your wishes or can act on your behalf? Maybe that's a member of the family or your lasting power of attorney. It's almost just encouraging people to think about it and have those conversations and then suggest that if there are things that are important, particularly that are pertinent to, I guess, in GP world, where they'd want to be cared for at the end of life and a conversation maybe about resuscitation or how active they want those treatments, that it would be good to follow that conversation up and be able to record that and look at the paperwork. But I really, if possible, I think if we can have these conversations early, maybe when people are entering their last year of life or when they've just come out of hospital, so that it can be a process rather than a one-off in an emergency, that is ideal. But I know that's not always possible, but I guess that's being brave, as you said, about having reviews and, you know, taking the opportunities when patients give us a cue that they are concerned about the future. And that sort of leads quite nicely on to, like, knowing when it's the right time to have a conversation. So um, certainly, obviously, there's a lot about reading the room and reading the patient and whether they're in the right place to have that discussion. But Claire, one of the things you mentioned was about, you know, when they might be entering their last year of life. And I think sometimes... Although we feel as doctors, we might be good at knowing when someone is deteriorating, I don't think we're necessarily very good at admitting it to ourselves. So how do we know when someone is deteriorating and to have that conversation? Claire said, you know, if someone's had hospital admission, their symptom burden is increasing. Certainly if they've sort of been told by, you know, if it's a cancer diagnosis, if they've progressed through treatment, so their tr- current treatment's being stopped. Those sort of, you know, COPD and things, if they're starting to have recurrent hospital admissions, things like that, that start to, and as I say, that the symptom burden's getting more increased or they're starting to struggle a bit more and maybe making more contact with the GP than they were before for various things. And I still really love the question from the gold standard framework, the surprise question. Would I be surprised if the person in front of me were to die in the next 12 months? And I'm sure that many a time a GP, if they actually pause to do that, I expect many of the people, they wouldn't be surprised if they were to die in the next year. And I guess, as you say, it's what you then do with that information. So I guess it's about clocking it and then thinking, if I wouldn't be surprised, maybe I should give them the benefit of the doubt to talk about it. You know, if time were short and there were, you know, what is important now are the things that you would like to talk about. You know, let's hope for the best, prepare for the worst is a phrase that I think is quite useful. And patients, I had a conversation last week, we say, and we talked about talking about these things as doing a piece of work let's talk about them and work out what is important because then we can get on with living and I know that that's an approach that I find people do find helpful and I think we often talk about although it's difficult now we know from experience that once you've had those conversations you actually will feel less anxious and you will be able to do the living and not worrying about the future because that's sort of been discussed and everybody's on the same page. Sorry, as I say, often sort of say it's much easier to have these conversations now while you're well, while things are okay. So you've got time to go away and think about it or to talk to your family. 
rather than waiting till something changes, till there's a crisis. And then, you know, you're being asked really difficult questions or things that or family members are having to make difficult decisions on your behalf in a crisis situation. But if we can talk about it now, well, things are okay and you've got time. And then, as Claire said, you can then park it. It's done. Get on with the living. And I think our generations, especially, we like having quite a bit of control over our lives and we're quite like being very prepared about these things. So actually, again, using that as a way of starting these conversations um, about being prepared for the future. So I think that's a really lovely way of broaching it. You know, like people are quite comfortable with the idea of a birth plan. They know that it doesn't necessarily, things don't go to plan, but they know if you've talked through it with your partner or the people around you, it's more likely to happen. And certainly the research says that if you've talked about what you want towards the end of life, it's easier and more likely to happen and so I think it is about yeah encouraging that autonomy and yeah that you're more likely to get the good end of life care if you've talked about it. I've never thought about it that way before but yes everyone talks about birth preferences there we go you know (laughs) but why not the same with death yeah exactly that's a really great way of thinking about it. So how do we talk about DNARs? I think, again, because of the last few years, well, actually, no, it's been going on for longer than this. I think over the last sort of five years, there has been a hesitancy from clinicians about conversations to do with DNARs. And I think some of that is linked to, you know, families not being happy about them being put in place or even people or the patients themselves. So I think sometimes that adds to the anxiety that doctors have about starting these discussions and then putting DNARs in place. Do you have any top tips to do with that? I think often, again, the conversation would start with the bits we've just talked about. So have all of that first. Don't sort of step in with DNR conversations at the beginning. You've picked up the cues. You've talked about what their wishes were, especially if somebody's saying to you, I don't, I wouldn't want to be in hospital or I don't want to be in hospital, then you can follow that on with, well, to ensure that we're able, you know, we're able to support that wish. There are a few things that we would, when the time, you know, would get in place and we can think, and one of those would be, you know, or have you thought about that sort of, rather than just going in with the DNR bit, you're tying it to what their wishes are. Yeah, and I quite like to think of it as a tool to enable in a natural death that you've said you want to die at home or wherever. And as part of that process, I think if it's within the context of a life-limiting illness from which there isn't much likelihood of success of resuscitation, that we need to say, almost take a bit of authority that we think this would be useful so that when the time comes and that your heart stops beating when you die, we're not going to do any heroics. We're going to allow you to have a natural death. There's another phrase that I've quite like that you know resuscitation is useful when somebody dies because their heart goes into a funny rhythm or stops but actually resuscitation is appropriate then but then the heart stopping is a natural part of dying that it's not going to be conducive to resuscitation and we should put the form in so that those people around you are very clear what they should and shouldn't do and so that if they do panic and you know call 999 or the out of hours GP that it's very clear that it's appropriate that this is an anticipated death and allow that death to happen. Do you have any ways of describing resuscitation to patients? Because there are some patients and people that don't necessarily know what resuscitation involves, or or they've got a very sort of glamorised view of it, of what they see on casualty and things like that. 
that's often what I would sort of start with rather than necessarily describe. I often check that people are okay as I'm starting that conversation. And if they're in quite so and ask them what they understand of resuscitation, but then and you know, and get their permission to continue. But then it's talking about you know, just saying that it is a brutal procedure. And I often do say it isn't like you see it on casualty and you're not going to be sat up having a sandwich half an hour later. It would definitely result in an admission to hospital and that would be likely a prolonged admission to hospital. That's if it was successful. Um, So just quite honest. Within Hertfordshire, there is an information leaflet, which I think is quite helpful because I think, as we've already said, people do think it's often successful, whereas I guess the group that we're thinking about where it might be appropriate, we know that in the community, the likelihood of it being successful with a good outcome is very low. So even having information that we can give to people about the DNA CPR conversations can be very useful as sort of maybe the first conversation to follow up a week later when people have had a bit of time to think about it. And I think we do often talk as well that it's about DNA CPR. So it's only talking about the, if your heart and lungs actually stop working, you know, resuscitation, because I think sometimes people do associate resuscitation with hospital admissions, IV antibiotics, IV fluids. So we need to be clear that this form is only about if their heart stops, that we wouldn't resuscitate them. It doesn't mean that they can't still access other types of care, going to hospital if they wanted it or um, having IV antibiotics or fluids if appropriate. I guess also, like, not just for the patient, but also their family, stressing that we would always make sure that they're comfortable and well cared for and all of that. Because I do think, especially with certain population groups, they might hear the word DNAR and think that, as you say, they're just going to be left. No one's going to do anything, which obviously is not the case. And when we talk about approaching end of life and uh, sort of leading on from what we've just said about keeping people comfortable, often we prescribe anticipatory medications for those symptoms that patients might be experiencing. And I actually, although I've prescribed them a lot, both in hospital and out of hospital, I still struggle with how to explain that to patients because I don't ever want them to think that, you know, their patient or their family member is going to be, you know, sedated or anything like that, because that's not what obviously what happens. So do you have ways of describing and explaining that to patients and their families? So I often sort of explain it's again going back to sort of relating it to their wishes and what they want so to be able to keep you at home and make sure that you're comfortable and I often call it just an emergency pack of standard medications kind of reassure them that it's something very common that we get in for a lot of people sometimes they don't even get used they're just there a bit like taking your umbrella out on a day trip just in case and the medications there. So if you're in pain, if you're in distress, if you're feeling sick, it's something and you know, often sort of use the often it might be a Sunday afternoon when you become unwell. There's not the medical support around that there might be during the week. This means that you can call somebody, you know, the nurses will come out and give you something to get you comfortable, and then we can deal with whatever's going on or what the problem is. But rather than you having to wait for doctors to come out, pharmacies that are open. We've got it all in the house. 
just in case you need it. I think like Caroline, the just in case it's there, may or may not use them and put it within the context, I guess, that when people are dying, they might not be able to swallow as part of the dying process. And I think that's another thing if we're talking about it, it's helping people understand what the normal dying process is and that actually as part of that, you might not be able to swallow. So these are injections so that if you come to that point and you can't take your normal medication or you are experiencing any symptoms that we'll be able to give them to you to keep you comfortable. We've both sort of touched on a really important point there, that often patients don't know what the dying process will necessarily involve. I read a book um, called With the End in Mind, and I think that's really helped me to explain to patients better about, and their families, about what they might see happening. And one of the questions that will always come up from family members and patients is, you know, how long have they got left? And it's still a difficult one for me to explain. Do you have ways of uh, broaching that question? Often I'll say we don't know. (laughs) I think it depends on where the patient is as to what answer I would give and who. I mean, if somebody is in their last days of life and it's a family member that's asking, you know, maybe there's a syringe driver up and things, then I will be on it. But with any time I give anything, it's always, I think, because so often, I mean, only this week I told somebody it was likely that her daughter was in her last days of life and actually she's still here. So you never know. But other, if it's the patient or earlier on, I just concentrate on talking about taking it day by day and managing what's happening in that moment, because I think so often it, we're wrong. <laughs> And I think it can be useful before you answer that question, just checking in as well what their perception is. What's your feeling? Why have you asked that question? Because sometimes it is about prognosis, but sometimes the actual underlying trigger might be fear about hospitals or pain management. So rather than before sharing whatever you share, giving them a bit of space to listen to what they're saying. Because sometimes when you give that space and ask what's their understanding, they almost break the news that they can see that they're deteriorating week by week and day by day. And so I think it is that that can be useful to get them to speak. And I think like Caroline's saying, it's managing that uncertainty. I wouldn't be surprised if they only have a few days, but equally they might surprise us and it might be longer, particularly with those living with dementia. I know that they often say people go to the edge and back, edge and back. Somebody can absolutely look like they're sick enough to die tonight, but they might surprise us and actually rally. And so we need to share that uncertainty with the family. And so I wouldn't be surprised if they did die tonight but equally they might might be here in a few days time which I think can be useful and I think it's avoiding numbers as well isn't it never ever saying numbers because people hook on to numbers and they're not helpful do you have any top resources that you'd recommend for anyone that so you know leaflets to give to patients or say if we've got any trainees or educators listening if they wanted to improve their own consulting skills do you have any sort of resources that you would recommend for those kind of things one that I want to pick up from your you were talking about it was Dr Catherine Mannix who wrote that book there is a lovely little video clip called in my humble opinion where she talks about dying is not as frightening 
as you might think. And I have to say, I use that with patients and carers. I'm quite brave because, as you say, people don't know what dying is. And she talks about dying via process. So I absolutely would recommend looking that up for yourself and to share with other people. I think that's on the BBC, isn't it? I think she did it for the BBC. Yes. It is. The BBC, in my humble opinions. Yeah. And it is on YouTube. I'll link it. I can actually add it as a link to the podcast. So yeah. That's right. I think if you look at england.nhs.uk end of life resources, that's where a lot of the end of life care resources are. If you want help talking about resuscitation, I highly recommend talkcpr.wales. Dr. Mark Tobert, there are some lovely videos there and he talks about a ladder approach to how much treatment people will want. And I certainly recommend that. Planning, and I recommend quite often websites relating to the disease that they're living with. So if somebody's living and dying with dementia, Alzheimer's organisation is good or Dementia UK, or if they're living with motor neurons disease, because there you can direct people to the part that about recognising dying within the context of their specific illness. With advanced care planning documents, it varies so much, doesn't it, Caroline, <laughs> everywhere. But I think it's working out what you've got available locally and having that to hand. Dying matters is quite good. Oh, yes. Yeah. And dying matters. Yes, dying matters is great. And there's universal principles for advanced care planning. They've got lots of that's just been launched this year, 2022. And there are lots of resources. If you look that up, there are lots of the documents that we sort of alluded to. So if you want to learn more, that's quite a good place to go. That's come up out of the CQC and the COVID, just reinforcing the important principles about advanced care planning and having those conversations. That's great. Thank you so much you both. I know there's so much more that we could cover with this area, but I really do feel like I've learned some key phrases. And I think one of the most important things that I've learned from speaking to you both is relate it back to what their wishes are. Start by finding out what their wishes are and listen, and then everything else will follow on and you can tie it back to that. So that's that's sort of my main learning point. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Take care. If what we've discussed has prompted any thoughts or questions, please do get in touch by leaving a comment, dropping us an email, or finding us on Twitter at AceGPTraining. And I'll include these further details in the bio, as well as some extra resources for you to look at. Thank you. And see you next time for the next episode of AceGPTraining.